0: Hey, everybody, it's Richard Harris and Scott Leese with another episode in season two of the Surf and Sales podcast uh, brought to you uh, in part by Vidyard, Lead 411, uh, Salesforce, Sales Cloud, and Gong.io. Scott, is there a blurb we're supposed to say on Gong? I can't remember.
1: Gong is a game changer, Richard. That's it's a game what it changer, is. and every sales leader should have it. Exactly.
0: There you go. See, that's much more natural rather than some marketing spiel someone ever gives us. Not yeah, the
1: this It's, it's very believable that neither of us can remember what we're supposed to do or say.
0: Yes. So which right. makes us authentic. So I want to, uh, super excited. I just met uh, this this woman in the last week and had an amazing conversation with her and i'm like okay we need to bring her on the podcast um it is mercy lee bell who is the co-founder of take care a virtual wellness event focused on authentic storytelling um which she'll gladly explain um and then we'll dive into some stuff so mercy welcome to the show and uh thanks so much for joining us
2: Thanks for having me. I recognize you both um, just from so many different places I've lived as a salesperson and also as a ex-salesperson. I just appreciate you both so much individually. So I'm really, really grateful to be here.
0: Well, that's my first question is, what does it mean to be an ex-salesperson? I know. Right. As
2: soon as I said it, I was like, he's going to come for me. Uh, it, <laughs> it's you know Never stop. But I think it's not the primary identity anymore. So if I say the word X, you know, it's like outside. I wear it loosely, like a garment, and I take it off sometimes because there's there's moments when I have to create and be almost like an artist, and I guess I try to forget that I have to ever try to get it get it to be sold, you know? Right. Um, yeah.
1: I, yeah. I like how I like how you phrase that. It's not the primary driver. I think yeah. is the, the phrasing. I think th- that's a definition that I could get comfortable with i wonder if i wonder if more of us um start to identify that way as as sales as a profession is uh, starting to change a little bit i think you know that whole like 1980s wall street boiler room kind of vibe i think Mm -hmm. is definitely not popular anymore although it's still out there in some places so i'm gonna i'm gonna remember that's my big takeaway already in the first minute so thank you for that
2: Let it be noted, listeners, watchers, that Scott had a takeaway within the first five minutes. That is yes.
1: Yes. I feel good. That is pretty cool. That's good. Yeah, we're done here. Right.
0: We're done. I'm out.
2: Get into that garden. Yeah. (laughs) Like
0: exactly. So so talk a little bit about your your background. Like where'd you even grow up? And Mm -hmm. um, you know, how'd you eventually get into sales? Like, did your parents know you were gonna be an entrepreneur?
2: Such a good question. I come from a long line of musicians and artists, and um, I don't think anyone thought I would I would end up being in sales or working in tech. Uh, You know, my background is I grew up um, in Boston, Massachusetts, and when I got to college, uh, I was broke and I saw a flyer in the campus. I think it was one of the the you know the activity rooms that said the highest paying job was to be a student fundraiser talk about the boiler room uh scott you know 2008 i'm a freshman in college and uh i'm calling like lehman brothers ex employees to ask them to renew their $25,000 gift and that was my first experience of sales i'm sure was- you got tons
1: of training too to do that
2: so much world-class what really ended up happening is that I discovered this um, it's not a superpower but I discovered that um, I really loved to connect with people on their most intimate memories and that's what alumni fundraising is you have to connect the person back to their deepest most kind of poignant moments as a university student and sometimes they're like 80 years old and they don't even remember much about the campus you have to draw it out of them in these conversations over the phone and um I was very good at it, but I was good at it because I genuinely loved the aha moment for them when they were like, oh yeah, I did love going here. Oh yeah, I will give again. You know, I'm going to give in this way that's really more invested and like feeling that energy, that energetic exchange, not to get too hippie on you, but like the energy was really good. And it felt really, really, um, I felt powerful in that role as a fundraiser. And I did it all four years. I did it 20 hours a week. I did more hours in the call center than I did as a student in the classroom.
0: Wow. And I bet you got a better education for it.
2: Don't get me started. Right. I think like a job should be required in college. I think it's where 90% of the success I had in career came from was just from sitting, hitting the phones, and getting good coaching over over those years. I always
0: say, you know, don't let college interfere with your education. Yeah. Why I went to Arizona. So, um, so it was was, a good time. Um, So, so what, when did you? Evolve your career from sales to, you know. Well, let me ask you this question: Did you used to identify yourself as a salesperson per your original definition, right?
2: Oh yes. So
0: what was that, that like?
2: Catch me in 2020, blonde curly hair, walking through a tech startup office barefoot. I was the second employee. We raised 55 million. I did about 30% of the company's first 10 million acting like the consummate like first sales rep. Like I got all the good accounts, I closed all the big deals and I did whatever the hell I wanted. I wore no shoes because that's what the guy in Mad Men did. I had this big blonde hair because I wanted to be unforgettable to you as a sales rep, which was easy to do as a 23-year-old enterprise sales rep being a black woman. I mean, I was unforgettable for that reason, but I wanted to one-up it. And I wanted to one-up it because deep down I felt like you know, the most, um, because deep down, I really didn't like myself. So I clung to the idea of being a high performer to being a sales rep and to being different and better than, even though if you really asked me on any given day, how I felt, I always felt like I was on the verge of losing my job. And I always felt like I just couldn't quite hit it. Like whatever that it was the bar of like, you know, I could never quite hit it. And so I would never sleep and I would drink the coffee and I would booze and I would, you know, try to learn golf terms and do all the things to be a great, great, great um, high performer. But secretly really felt really kind of like, I mean, I don't even know, this is the human condition. I just never Could, felt quite good enough.
1: You, you mentioned you couldn't quite hit it. Is that because you were raising the bar on yourself or because others were raising the bar on you?
2: I don't think it's such a, damn, that's a good question.
1: I asked the question. I'll give you a minute here for you to think. I asked the question because I have this problem. Mm. Um, I don't do well when people raise the bar on me because I'm already raising the bar so high on myself all the time. Mm. I'm like, I don't get off me. I don't need you Mm. to tell me I got to do more. I'm already fucking trying to do more. I'm I'm already two steps ahead of you. And the second piece of that, that I resonated with as well is I really struggle with, uh, disconnecting my productivity from my self-worth big time. And w- as you were talking and saying, you know, I was doing all this, I was a high achiever. I wanted to stand out this, I wanted to be known and you, but you weren't happy. I'm thinking to myself I'm thinking, Oh yeah, because I'm only as good as how good I'm doing. Cause that, that, that's how I think. And 100%. I struggle with that even now. So that's where 100%. the question question came from.
2: I mean, I, I would just nod to everything you said, Richard, for you, particularly early I and mean, think about also like really early in our careers, like those early twenties or th- in, in, into the thirties, what was sort of your feeling about everything?
0: Oh, I would just say the same thing. Like I would, I was only connected to my work self. I, um, you know, I think Scott knows this. I went by Ricky at the time, but there were, there was. There Stop.
2: Was- yeah. You were Ricky?
0: Oh yeah. For a long time.
2: Are so- you still Ricky with anyone?
1: Only when he pisses me off, then I say Ricky. But he doesn't.
0: Yes. So I am. I am still Ricky with all my friends from from high school and college. Um, So uh, but but there was only work Ricky. There was no personal me. Um, I didn't know how to to be that person. I had no social skills. My entire social life evolved around my work life. So I never. Sort of created enough outside interests in myself. And I, you know, all along, I mean, I've talked about this openly, I've, I've shared with you, Mercy, is that, you know, all along I was depressed every step of the way, um, but I was functional because I was a functional, depressed person. Um, and so, you know, I, 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 you know, I can identify with I didn't like who I was. So I was clinging to my career because I didn't like who I was, um, which I think is sort of what you said. Um, So, but you said this was all in 2020. Is that when you said this was your.
2: Sorry, 2012. I am, I'm 30. I'm 30 now. Um, My career in sales started as soon as I graduated from that fundraising job uh, as a, as an undergrad, I went straight into a startup and it was right in Palo Alto. Right. Right in like a real estate office. You know, was, we were just like this, just classic, you know, a few engineers and a really junior person who didn't know any business jargon.
0: Right. So, so when did you have this epiphany of, you know what, I don't like myself. I don't like who I've let myself become. Um, like, was, what was that moment for you?
2: Mm. You know, I often share this one story. First off, understanding I don't really like myself uh, would take much, much longer. It was just this feeling like not everything's right in the world. And I didn't realize what wasn't right was I didn't feel right. So it wasn't that I walked around with low self-esteem. If anything, I acted like I had real confidence and I would preach self-love and I did a yoga teacher training and I led the healthy habits challenges at our office. You know, nobody would have known I didn't like myself. I bought really nice skin creams I went on vacations. I had a, a pop in Instagram, and so no one could tell, and I couldn't tell. That's how good of a liar I was, you know. I always say like, real dishonesty is also starts with self. I didn't know I didn't like myself. Oh, I
0: agree. I agree.
2: <laughs> right. So.
0: Uh, Damn.
2: Like, and finding out I was depressed as well, Richard. Years later, I'm like, but I always got things done. Yeah. That's not a prerequisite. What, what
0: was What was the moment? Like, what was the Was it? Right. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, coming out of tech crunch. 2000 and want to say 15. uh, I had been on the booth like for three days straight Johnny Walker was sponsoring uh, something in the center. So I'd been drinking for three days straight. And I had these really high heels on which again, like never wear heels again. Uh, But at the time, I remember being so tired, I could barely see straight. And I could feel on the backs of my heels in these, um, you know, coming out of the convention center, could feel that I had blisters that had opened. And I'm, and I'm telling you this like raw, because I want you to really feel this. I, um, I was so tired, I could barely stand and my feet were bleeding. And when someone came over to me and said, hey, Mercy, you want to come on the party trolley? You want to come on the party bus? We're going to do the rounds through San Francisco one more time. We're going to stop at Pinterest. Come on, you should come. It was as if someone had tied an invisible cord around my waist and pulled me onto that party trolley. Like I had no choice. My desire to be validated, to be seen, to be good enough, my desire to just like um, be a part of anything at all was so great that I actually couldn't even make a decision for myself, which was that I needed to sleep and I needed to take off my shoes. And um, you know that was one of the first moments I realized that I had a drinking problem. Which no one had told me about, because again, like the depression. Just because I'm productive doesn't mean I'm not depressed. Just because I can hold my liquor and don't make a fool of myself, I don't even know if that's true. Doesn't mean I might not have a drinking problem. <laughs> and I'm laughing about it. it's not that funny, you know. I could have died many times. Um, I think from the way I drink. But all of that to say, I got on the party trolley. And when I woke up the next day, I conceded to my innermost self that something was wrong with me. Not with me, like fundamentally but something was off with how I was living because in no world after that convention, should I have not gone to bed? Um, and I always share that story. So, you know, it's a, it's a big one for me, a big, it was a big light bulb. Um, yeah. Yeah.
0: How did you take the first step towards a different path? Like, do you remember?
2: Oh, yeah. Don't you? I don't know. how. I'd love to get your thoughts on this. I always feel like it's a million little moments that lead up to the change. It's like the cold course, correct? Like even just 0.5% sends me off in a totally different direction. You know, I quit sales suddenly somewhat that, that following year and went back home back East, but.
1: To do what? To do what?
2: (laughs) I don't want to tell you.
1: That's fine. You don't, you don't. don't No, it's it's funny. But you pivoted. you, yeah. I'm trying to get at like the pivot yeah. from sales it's just so corny. To, to I joined the family
2: business. At. Um, I joined a family business for about a year.
1: Why and is that? I, why, is, why is that corny? That doesn't sound corny. That sounds like a strategically wise decision and healthy. Make, make a family. healthy decision to pivot from what was no yeah. longer serving you into a transitionary period that served some purpose. Yep, Which eventually has led you to kind of where you are now.
2: I like you saying that. Um, And I so appreciate it. Uh, It was a little bit, one of those things where, you know, I I became a yoga teacher. I put on a new hat, trying to be sort of like, you know, positive mindset, all good. And uh, my brother's a celebrity massage therapist. So we, I was over there with him building out this wellness business and I still hadn't addressed so many of the issues. So it's not so much the family business part. It's this idea of like, you know, joining in on something, but not really living it. And that's what I did for about, um, about a year. And then slowly but surely went back into sales as a consultant and a data scientist. And now here doing whatever I'm doing.
1: Well, why don't you talk to us about what you're doing right now? I, I've, never, I've never heard of it before. Sure. Um, and we've never, never met before, so give me the, give me the lowdown. Talk to me about, about Take Care and what it is you do and cool. that kind of stuff.
2: Yeah, well, um, you know, the whole, the whole point of Take Care was to build a virtual space during the pandemic where people could get honest about what they've been through. Um, I think I, we start to take it for granted when we do it for ourselves and with the people we're closest to. But I know a lot of people in the pandemic forget that they're not alone in anything related to mental health anything related to the wellness journey, chronic illness, grief and loss, the joys and the tribulations of parenting all of it. Um, You know, the shame and the fear around all these subjects come when we just don't realize we're not alone. So we recorded 110 stories. Um, In the last 12 weeks, we built Are these?
1: Sorry to interrupt. Is this your stories, stories from others? So what does the 112 stories look like?
2: Yeah, we gathered stories from about 80 leaders across industries, experts, authors, and everyday people. Um, They all committed a story without any prompt other than tell us something specific from your wellness journey. And that's how we built the story bank, so to speak and Take Care is a 30 day experience of all those stories. We built a virtual environment, a house. You explore room by room, and these stories, all recorded, all audio, sort of are available to you. And uh, haven't slept in a few weeks. My co-founder is a, an amazing event designer from South by Southwest, and we got connected through a LinkedIn post. What are the chances?
1: <laughs> the chances? I- are increasingly high that <laughs> no offense that people are partnered up you know and, and doing things through a platform like like linkedin so that doesn't surprise me too much well, this and is I, where I,
0: I spoke to her last week scott and i was like okay we need to get her on the podcast um because i i'd seen this virtual world she'd created and uh and i was like okay scott's gonna like like her and what she's doing and then mercy you need to interview scott i don't know if you know i would
2: love is. to
0: um you know he spent several years literally in the hospital fighting um for his life and stuff so anyway so I think you'd be a good addition to your repertoire she's
1: got she's got enough stories no no Scott there's not enough story Richard
2: no we don't have enough stories from people's beards and that's like one of my (laughs) (laughs) wow
1: Uh, first of all I like anybody who comes in just making fun of me straight away. There've right. been so many
2: moments. We've
1: already okay. we've bonded. At first she gave me like wisdom in the first 30 seconds and now she's making fun of me like we're 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 good. Okay, I now I'll you. do Now I'll do a story.
0: Good. Yeah. Good. So good. so so coming back to to sales, right? And and your you know what you've experienced. What are, what are two or three things that you would encourage people? Um, and, and I'm actually going to go even more specific. I, I'd love to know what advice you would give to other black women in sales.
2: Thank you. Uh,
0: And, and, and black people, you know, or, or people of color, don't necessarily have to be male or female, but it's, it's even, you know, as I understand it, it's even more rare, you know, for, for black women. So what advice do you give to them? And what advice do you give to us? Who are Amazing. the white males who and white women who are you know, tend to dominate a little bit more? Certainly, the white males.
2: Yes, appreciate that. Um, first off, I want to plug Sales for the Culture, which I have the honor of sitting on the board for, and um, but more importantly, uh, you know, there's a podcast called Made It. I have a few interviews on there. We've really there's a there's a visibility conversation that's starting that's actually making me realize there are more black tech sellers, incredible ones. And I I just didn't know we existed because we're kind of dispersed. So um, the advice I would give for any black woman in sales is to recognize difference as a competitive advantage. Um, Which, you know, when we were talking about self-love, you know, difference feels like a bad word. I feel different, something's wrong, something feels different, that all feels negative. But inside of sales, to be different visually, uh, I have found it to be an incredible point, like almost, yeah, an advantage. Um, I embrace my age, looking young. I look less young than I used to, but I still look pretty young, which I used to think would be a handicap or a disability for my, uh, excuse me, handicap for, for this, but it's not. Um, and so I would say really embrace all the, the unique ac- aspects of who you are. It um, doesn't mean to call them out because that can speak to discomfort. But What's kind the of a mess ma-
0: there? Because I, I was wondering, like, like how? What does that mean? Because I, I, yeah. I don't know what that is.
2: Sure, um, I'll give two examples. One being that when I go to a conference and I realize, uh, like, you know, I'm probably going to be the only Black woman on the floor, possibly. I mean, back in 2013, 14, maybe certainly, um, I used to try to wear what everyone else was wearing. I used to try to do the uniform. In fact, I even got a vest and I one time even wore a collared plaid shirt. Like I really did the whole thing. This is and um, troublesome. yeah. Oh, I used to, I would straighten my hair. I would do whatever I could to try to like uh, approach the visual cues of like many of my peers. And then when I actually let my hair grow, stay curly even dyed a blonde just for fun. Uh, and I started to wear bright colors which are actually my personality. That's when things really started to shift for me in my career. Because I didn't seek to try to be visually any different than I am. Uh, And that was a huge, more of actually a presence thing. I'd write emails more boldly as a result. I'd walk into meetings. Even if someone said, are we waiting on anyone else? If I get that one more time, are we waiting on anyone else? No, just me. And I'm going to sell Expedia and do the largest mobile marketing deal for Yahoo. I'm going to do it all as a Black woman proudly in her 20s and do it without any sort of um, chip on my shoulder because I'm so grateful to look this way and to be this way and to be who I am. I don't need to prove anything to you. I just, am gonna be me. And the energy of that, when there's no trying to like, you know, (laughs) it's a It's it's magnetic.
1: How do you do do that without without the chip on your shoulder? This, I-
2: Tell me, yeah.
1: I I have had a chip on my shoulder forever.
2: With that beard. And, yeah. and still
1: do. <laughs> and still do. And I in my head I've told myself the narrative that um it's given me a competitive, you know, advantage. I don't I don't know that I think it is maybe a competitive advantage, but I also know that it's probably somewhere inside of me like not super healthy. Yeah. So how did you how did you go about that shift from not having the chip on your shoulder and more just being incredibly proud of you are
2: so much comes from recovery you know I'm five years sober and I think um I've become less interested in my past I used to go to therapy all the time so interested in how traumatic my childhood was so interested in how poor how whatever like I had all this you know wrapped up in that identity too and as a result everything I did was about proving to you like you know what look at what I can do and now I just don't do that I just don't have that attachment to the past. Like I used to in my recovery, I have to be grateful to be grateful. I can't go back there. I will drink and I will use drugs if I am not in a state of gratitude. And I'm one of those, I'm not one of those. Who's like, you know, I just drink a little too much. Like given the opportunity to get into resentment and self-pity I'm off. Like, like there's just no, there's no hope. So I live in gratitude, which requires a present moment awareness and some future curiosity. And from that, I can't identify with my past and I can't, if I can't identify with my past as much, I can't be trying to, you know, prove myself out of it. So I don't identify by, um, at least as much. I still do sometimes, but I'm not on here trying to make sure y'all know I'm articulate and smart, which is what I would have really wanted to do is make sure you both knew, you know, that I was good enough. And, um, you know, it's a long journey. But I will tell you one thing, last thing, Scott, because if you think you're powerful now running on the fuel of a chip on your shoulder, just try for a week running off of pure gratitude for everything you have, including that garden. And I think, I don't know, my experience has been I have twice as much energy and then these random things, people are attracted to me in a totally different way. And I mean, attracted to me. Because the energy of like, fuck you under on everything I do, people can feel that too.
0: Yeah, Scott, we can feel that. <laughs>
2: I don't get it from you personally, but I'm sure.
1: That's because you, if you don't get it from me personally, there's two reasons. Um, number one, you know, as Richard alluded to, I don't think you spend four years fighting for your life um, and come out the other side of that unchanged and and. I've been incredibly grateful to be sitting here and breathing this air, let alone get an opportunity to be a salesperson, let alone get an opportunity to be a VP of sales and all the, whatever else, everything else that I've, I've done. So I have that gratitude and appreciation um, for sure. And then, you know, in terms of the recovery kind of journey, I mean, through my illness, I got addicted to opioids. And, and so, you know, having to kick off of that, and and knowing myself when certain moments of pain come up real or imagined physical or mental my my default is always like well i can numb that shit quick i can numb it quick i don't have to feel that and my brain still goes there that's 17 years later now my brain still goes there but the undercurrent is, is, is there. It's not with humanity. It's not with people that I interact with. It's with very specific people from my past. So, I, I, I'm, this is not a, I have not perfected this at all, which is why I asked the question. And I'm, I'm not trying to assume that you have perfected it, but the way that you articulated it, you know, just spoke to me and, and made me think, well, shit, I, I, there's something to be learned here you know, from that, that I haven't quite figured out yet. That's all, that, that, that's maybe why you don't get that sense, but it's in there. And, and if I get poked by the wrong people, often enough, Richard knows, you know. <laughs> Richard's face
2: is like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, we yeah, know this.
1: You know, the, the Sicilian in me comes out quick, you know.
0: It, yeah, it, sometimes it does though. I think you've gotten better, Scott, at, you know what, I'm just gonna walk away from that conversation.
1: Right. Well, a little, a little, a little bit of that is age and maturity. And right. you know, a, lot, a lot of it is probably just, you know, I no longer, I just don't care anymore. I don't care to have an argument. I don't care mm-hmm. about being right. I'm just not, I'm just not interested.
0: I also, it's interesting too, like, I, cause I, you know, now that I know both of you, you, you have this similar take, you know, Scott was also a professional athlete. So that level of chip on the shoulder is a little I don't know if it's any different. Maybe it is the same. I don't know. I never, I never had it quite like Scott, um, you know. And I, and I've said, you know, he hates losing more than he likes winning, right? Mm-hmm. And so that drives him, you know, with passion to do things. Um, and I, and I know a lot of people in sales, like I, I think you know they hate losing more than they like winning, and, uh, and so so it's just interesting to, to me to see all those pieces. So. Um, you know, what do you do for fun? Like what's your, you know, you're you're working crazy hours, right? You're no longer drinking and caffeinating. Maybe you're still caffeinating, I don't know. But there it is. What do you
1: (laughs) be proud about it too? As you
0: as in
2: the chronic hydrator, I have so many glasses. I think this is part of the ism for me, is like one is never enough. I mean, literally just with water and like electrolytes.
1: Got empty cups everywhere.
0: to your point, like you weren't living a life, which is kind of how I was at one point, you know, you know, what did you decide to take up? Are you, are you still doing your yoga stuff? Or are you still doing, you know, what is your, what's your hobby that you love?
2: I I'm a reader. Um, I read, I try to read a book a week and not like nothing smart. I don't read nonfiction, pure science fiction, pure, like, you know, magic and dragons and things that would like make you both think differently of me because, um, you know, my brain can't live all the time in the real world. And yeah. I can't escape the way I used to, because it will kill me. Right. So I, I try to use books and movies um, to get outside of myself and to imagine a, a, a different way. And I get inspiration all the time from books and movies and music. Um, and so, yeah, that's really you my what, hobby.
1: What's super interesting to me about that is um, mm-hmm. a while back, somebody asked me, like, what what's your favorite books to read? And I say, anything except business books. <laughs> I don't it's too hard for me to sit there in this like seriousness and intellectualness of, of of hundreds of pages of all this stuff. I could read, I don't know what you know books you're thinking of, but like I read the entire Enders Game series. There's like nine, oh, there's like nine books I read favorite. them all. I read them all in the hospital when i was sick right and i could go back i could go back and look through those books and apply all sorts of things to sales to leadership to entrepreneurship for sure so i get inspiration from those things so somebody said to me what's the best sales book you ever read i said not a sales book and i think it's underrated and and you know i think a listener might hear the first part of your answer which was i tried to read a book a week and immediately be like, oh, fuck off.
2: I cannot read a
1: book a week. The problem is not that you can't read a book a week. The problem is you're trying to read shit that is not super interesting and not super inspirational for you because other people told you that's probably what you're supposed to read. No.
2: And even, even while there's something you used to do in sales conversations, um, so with like a, a disco call, maybe a little bit later into the process, I'd start to ask the prospect what they were into, like what their hobbies were and what they were into. And without making it so obvious, so like, you know, being the next day, like, hey, I've read this book now, I would try to mirror their interests and their hobbies through my reading. And I would find, um, one, empathy for the prospect. Uh, I would find something I didn't know. I'd get interested, curious about them and what they liked. And um, I still do that to this day. I ask people, what are you reading? I try, if I'm becoming friends, I try to read that book or read something in the genre because I think what we consume is who we are. I really believe that. I watch a lot, a lot of crime docs. So you better be worried about me showing up with a- machete or something um, but have you all seen Son of Sam wait we need to talk about it if you have have you seen this new Netflix documentary I
1: have not seen
0: it I have yet. not seen that one no but I've, I've seen it and I'm kind of wondering if I should see it or not so I feel her, like re- her expression sound it looks like we should re- you should watch this you should
2: I think this. you should watch it it's really I love the dark side of human psychology and how we work and what we do and it's real dark
0: yeah, that's exactly where I need to go. So.
1: Well, what what was interesting there, Richard, is you listen to Mercy talk. It's like she's, she's working her – that's like prospecting master's degree. Like you listen to what other people are listening to. You read what their prospects and buyers are – are reading you need to learn more about them and how they think and how to connect with them like that's particularly important in enterprise kinds of sales don't you think Richard
0: Yeah I do I do and it's you know again it's back to that personalization and versus personalization of of sales um, so I I completely see that so.
2: It it reminds me of something else which um you know I don't come from a business background I'm the first person to graduate high school in like you know sort of the chronological way in my family and um, you know, I didn't know things like I didn't know Bant. I didn't know. I didn't even understand business terminology. When I got my first job, I, I just had no idea what was going on, but so I knew cool. I loved people. Even if some of it was that self worth worth thing. And I used to ask prospects what they wanted to do with their careers. I'd be like, where do you want to go? Do you want to stay at this company? I ask all types of inappropriate, like inappropriate in the sense that they were uh, tangential to the product at hand, but I would start to build this idea of how I could be of service to them. And even though I was selling a lot for my self-esteem, there was a part of me that deeply loved people and really wanted that magic moment of connection. And I would tie back this enterprise tech, which was like marketing analytics, I would tie it back to their career journey, or I'd tie it back to that book or that part of their psyche that I kind of identified. Oh, really risk averse, reads a lot of apocalyptic fiction. Oh, doesn't like this company that much, but maybe this could help them, you know, X, Y, and Z. And I would just say the thing on the call because I didn't know about business etiquette and like, I didn't understand that people hide and, you know, lie all the time in sales conversation. So I'd be like, hey, doesn't seem like you're loving it here, but maybe you're thinking about, you know, this position. Have you thought about this position at the company? I'd send them job wrecks, you know, like crazy shit that I look back on and I'm like, "Mm, probably wasn't a sales technique, but it worked because it was honest. And I wanted to be with them, understand them and help them genuinely as people, not personas.
1: And that, ironically, is the best sales technique.
0: It is completely, yeah. completely. I actually want to I want to circle back to a to a subject because mm. we 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 you answered it, but we didn't talk about the second question, which is what can sales leaders do better, uh, unless particularly white male sales leaders, to embrace you know men and women of color, black, African American. <laughs> Um, what, what are we missing out on that we are just oblivious to?
2: It's a huge part of why we built take care. Um, so empathy is actually harder. It's harder to understand what someone else is going through when they're going through something really different. So no, so no white leader can know what it feels like to be, let's say a black man in America. I I'm not a black man in America also can't understand that. But um, these, these unique experiences, if, if white leaders in particular can stop to listen, um, Take Care is a place where you can do this, but like uh, many places, uh, just beginning to build this sense of not empathy per se, because you can't understand it fully. Like I can't understand everything fully. You start to build this awareness of how much you don't know. And that lends itself to a different type of conversation as a leader with your employees. On Black History Month, You won't just be like, oh good, I did the thing. I like sent out the email. I like did the thing like, woof, not a racist. It's like, I wonder how it feels to have your history in only a single month of the year. I wonder if there's a way we could do this differently as a company. I wonder if there's a way to just like, you know, so just the curiosity and the, because you kind of have this, this pause of like, I wonder what it's really like and not saying, oh, I know what it's really like, but being interested and curious and hearing people's stories builds that curiosity. So like, there's so much literature and books, but like talking to actual people of color on your floor, like no bullshit, what's really going on for you. And it's really hard to make a safer, safe enough space for them to answer you honestly. So then go one degree out, you know, um, and, and get resources, like it's so hard. Uh, to understand the complexity of being Black in the workplace, and there's not one way it looks. But I will just tell you, when I walked into some of my sales environments, the number of times when I closed a deal, they would play a hip-hop song for me, but they would play the rock song for my counterpart. The number of times I was at Google once, and I was leaving the office, and they said, Mercy, where are you going? And I said, I'm going home. And they said, to do hood rat things with your friends. And I remember thinking to myself, there just must be no pause and no curiosity about what it feels like. So my advice is to get quiet and listen to stories and not take them personally, but get interested in what the experience is like for other people. We can all be doing that, myself included.
0: I love that, Thanks. I- yeah crazy I, I love that line get quiet listen to stories and um and, and what was the last part of it get quiet listen to stories. i don't know
2: i black out when i talk basically i don't know i know it happens
0: to me all the time um,
1: that's what happens when you just drop wisdom like when you that. drop great knowledge so yeah it takes it, out so of you. it takes it out of you for a minute <laughs> i can't i can't imagine my god i can't imagine uh sales leaders of any kind any shape and size just saying something like that Um, which is not even remotely trying to mask or hide (laughs) your your biases biases whatever the word is
2: so many are unconscious so many You know, it was so funny because I grew up. My mom is a country western singer. She was in a punk rock band. My mom is white. My biological mother is blonde, blue-eyed. All that family's from Germany. I identify as a black woman. I am a black woman. But it was so interesting to walk into a workplace and for the CEO to, to ask me to tell, you know, him about the history of hip hop. And I'm over here like my favorite song is Simple Man, Leonard Skinner. So you want me to tell you about hip hop at that time, there was no language to say, hey, you don't see me. Mm. There was no language for that. So all I had to do was just kind of be like, do a quick Google search and be like, yeah, we should be listening to Tribe Called Quest. Mm. You know? And it's only as funny as I, as I make it today, but how many people, you know, we just, these it's micro, this, micro. The, aggressions. And it's yeah. those
1: little things that, you know, I have never had to deal with in the workplace that would make my job one percent harder and this is just one one moment that mercy's talking about yeah and there's probably thousands of those micro moments that people of color that women you know deal with every single day and it's not that it it's not that that one moment is overwhelming and makes your job impossible to do. It's just the weight of all of those little moments. And what an advantage for me to not have to deal with that shit, yeah. you know, whether consistent or every now and then. I don't know if you feel the same way as me, Richard, I suspect that, that you do, um, yeah. but it may, makes our job so much easier.
0: Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I've had a couple of clients and I remember, um, I think I've shared this before when, uh, when things happened back in Ferguson several years ago, and there was one uh, black woman on the floor, and I was doing sort of like one one-on-ones as part of my consulting, and I just before getting into sales, I just I think, "Do you really want to talk about sales, or or how are you doing? Like, what's going on?" And uh, and she shared, you know, that she appreciated me asking. I said, "Has anybody even like said anything here?" And she's like. Well, they had a meeting, you know, they they got us together to, you know, express, you know, concerns and those kinds of things. And I said, yeah, I said, I said, I'm really sorry. I said, I, I don't know what this is like for you other than it seems to be very uncomfortable. And, uh, and you know, so we, we just talked about it. So and it was probably one of the most. Um, without being selfish, the most rewarding conversations, because you create a real connection with that person. Right. And, you know, to this point, I I remember her vividly image wise and name and, you know, just, you know, you create that deeper connection, which is what I think all leaders want. And I know salespeople want, I know not even salespeople, but everybody wants that connection with the leader. And I think it's.
2: we've all experienced it how we work when the thing on the line is um family so I know work isn't about creating a family in a perfect world it's 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 work it's not it's not a family but when a leader takes time to invest and listen and care I will work twice as hard and not from that um you know burn myself out way it's like I work I work with a different level of um it's like the fuel is clean. When I'm afraid of you, when I'm trying to be good enough for you, I'm running on like this dirty fuel, yeah. you know? And yet when I know that, like I'm on a team where I'm supported and seen and I actually can bring more of myself, the way I work is different. I yeah. mean, new ideas, right? We get inspired like, uh, but if I'm only thinking about hitting my activity levels or, or, or just trying to not fall below X and I'm in fear mode, I never get creative. Yeah. and and I and I can't work as hard because I'm exhausted. Half my brain's thinking about, am I going to get fired, or do they really see me, or why did he say that thing? or...
0: That makes total sense. And we gotta we gotta move to wrap it up. Um, yeah. Want to give a quick shout out to Salesforce Sales Cloud Lead Four One One Vidyard and Gong.io, the game changer, if I got it right. In, well done, Richard, in 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 sales uh, as a technology. Um, Mercy, we always turn this around and, you know, what question can we answer for you?
2: Oh, I have so many, Uh, but I want to, I want to choose one that's top of mind. What's the part of yourself that you, you're both quite visible on the internets. Um, What's the part of yourself that is least visible, least visible?
1: Hmm. That's easy for me.
0: That's what. 10?
1: That's easy for me. <laughs> what's the, What's that, Scott? Uh, my physical pain. Nobody. Nobody knows. You know. You don't. This is not. This is not mental, and it's not emotional. It's physical pain. Um, yeah, I. I went through. I've been through nine surgeries. Uh, four major abdominal surgeries. Two life-saving abdominal surgeries. I have no large intestine. Uh, I've been on medicine <clears throat> that makes. Joints and tendons and everything hurt and ache. I have osteopenia, osteoporosis, early arthritis. Um, So my body is beat up all day, every day. And it's just people, you can't see, you can't tell, you don't, you don't know, you know, I'll do shows like this or I'll be visible and, you know, people will say, you know, how's it going? How you doing? I'm like, I'm, I'm fine. And then Richard has been around me long enough now where he'll message me and be like, Hey, how you feeling? I'm like, dude, I'm fucking dying, dude. <laughs> like I would, I, I literally pulled myself out of bed like five minutes ago. Cause I'm in so much pain. Um, so that is that part, you know, and people don't know that from a neck up zoom and the way that I, you know, least try to show up for different events and and whatnot that 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 part is the part people don't know and don't see how much work it took me this morning to get to a place where I could have this conversation um that's the part
0: yeah this is it's I might have to ask Scott to answer this for me because it's hard for me because I do talk about everything I don't think I hide anything whether it's family stuff or my emotional stuff or personal stuff, I think that um, I think the, probably the, the thing I hide the most is um, how much joy I feel inside. Not that I not that I don't have excitement and those kinds of things, but I' because I talk so much about mental health, people are always asking me about it and, and I'm, I'm not done with my journey. Um, but I'm, I think I'm through the hardest parts of it. And, and so I have to sort of be mindful when I'm talking to people who, who ask me, well, how are you doing? Um, how I answer that, like, I'm, I'm a little more surface about, oh, work is good. The family's good. Life is good. I can't complain. I'm very blessed. You know, nobody got sick, sort of those things. Because um, I'm afraid that, uh, that I'll just sound like an asshole, like, you know wow, the world is great. Everything's fantastic. And I, and I, and I'm also very conscious too of like what's happening socially and politically in the world right now. Um, I'm afraid I'd feel tone deaf if I didn't um, try to curb my enthusiasm a little. So I don't know, Scott, what do you, does that seem accurate of me?
1: Yeah, I think that's pretty accurate. I I was going to, if you made me answer for you, I would say you hide how good you are at sales to be honest with you.
0: Well, I don't I, even think. I, I don't even think I know. I'm hiding it because I don't think I am. <laughs> I think that's barely yeah. well, true.
1: I, I think that's the un the unspoken piece is how fucking good you are at, at what you do. You don't. Yeah. You don't ever talk about uh, your wins or, you know, brag or boast. Not even really to me. And like this is a safe place. Like you should be. Every time you close a deal, you should be, you know, shoot me a message that says, "I just did this. I just did that." Yeah. Because you know, I, I think. I think everybody deserves to have one of those kind of safe places. But I think the world doesn't know how good you are at, at selling and training, coaching and developing. And uh, I think that's the part that you hide a little bit. And because you're so open and talking about all these other challenges, I don't think they necessarily know how good you are. at all
0: yeah, I'm not comfortable talking about myself that way. That's for sure. That's yeah. for sure. I also don't tell you, Scott, because then you're going to one up me. <laughs> well.
2: He's like, you're not wrong. It's probably
0: truth. That's probably factual. Yeah.
2: But but here's this is why I'm always so conscious of, I I don't play on LinkedIn. Okay. I don't play on the internet much. I don't go out there. I don't have a brand. Um, One of my greatest fears is getting caught in my own narrative. So, um, you know, Scott, you've got the hero's journey, right? For so many, it's like, was there now here. I can see my up here. And how do you also then go back and explain? Well, I wake up every fucking day down here, every day, and I have to pull myself back up to your here, okay. physically, mentally, and I know the emotional and spiritual. mind. I say, a journey with chronic pain and illness. Oh, okay. Uh. Well, Richard, like you got a whole story down here, but also your the facts on the ground is you're killing it, and life is amazing. So I just feel like my great. I'm just putting out here one thing. I am afraid to have any sort of to be known of for anything because then I'm afraid it's like a, a little bit like a trap.
0: Yeah. It's, this is a whole other conversation we could go into. Yeah, around we'll do
2: the that problem. another day.
0: The trap. Part two of the podcast. The
1: trap yeah. part two. Yes.
0: Yeah. Anyway, we, we do need to wrap it up, but right. Mercy, thank you so much for, for thank coming on. short notice And uh, awesome, awesome conversation. And, and thanks for all the education and wisdom.
1: Yeah, for sure. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to meet you, Mercy.
2: So good to meet you both. Thanks for having me. Bye, everybody.